Hi, I'm Jason. And I'm Scott. Welcome to Skip Down Shuffle, a podcast where we delve into an overlooked song by a popular artist. In today's episode, we're going to talk about the song Price I Pay by Jane's Addiction off of their 2003 album, Strays. Today's episode is particularly exciting for, for Jason and I because we're both huge Jane's Addiction fans. And we're also excited to talk about the band in in a broader sense, simply because it's one of those groups that is hugely influential uh, on, on numerous genres of music and yet doesn't really get thought about too much when, you know, if you were to just go up to somebody and say, like, list off the the, the top 50 most influential bands of all time, you know, there's a good chance that Jane's Addiction probably wouldn't make the list. Yet, there's not a band that sounds quite like Jane's Addiction. And any band that you can name that does sound like Jane's Addiction came after Jane's Addiction. So they're just one of those bands that like totally carved out its own niche and ended up influencing all these other groups, yet for some reason doesn't really get the credit that often. Yeah, especially for alternative rock music. When you mention alternative bands, your mind immediately, you know, goes to Seattle, early 90s. And it's weird to think about that this band in their prime era was over and done with before the album Nevermind by Nirvana like even came out, which is just kind of crazy to think about. And before you know you even heard of I mean, Soundgarden, Alice in Chains, these bands were around, but they weren't anywhere nearly, you know, they, they hadn't found much success yet beyond the local scene before this. And this band was like done by then. So it's weird to think about the kind of roads that they carved for other bands, maybe even insofar as like, well, let's not be the four personalities that <laughs> are in that are in this band, which will lead to our, our demise. Because I'm sure, you know, that that's kind of a, the other thing about Jane's Addiction is just sort of the the broadcast of the wildness of this band is, you know, Perry Farrell, one great front man and not hesitant at all to basically go out there and be like, drugs are great. And I feel, you know, fantastic, like taking drugs. <laughs> and, <laughs> you know, there's there's a lot of bands where, you know, when they, they try to keep that side quiet or, you know, you know, they party versus like, it's like an essential part of the music and part of the personality of Jane's Addiction is like celebrating that excess. Yeah, I think I think Jane's Addiction without drugs and strippers and nudity and hypersexuality is like Cypress Hill without pot. It's like, you know, <laughs> it's like, you know, these, these, it's, it's part of the group, Perry, especially, and Dave in a certain way, uh, just kind of dives right in. And like you said, like, doesn't try to hide it. It's just like, no, like we are a over the top, completely excessive rock band. And we're going to indulge in that and bring you along for the ride. And, you know, that's that might be something that kind of turns some people away because they're, you know, they're just like, what the hell is even going on here? You know, I can I could definitely see, you know, like some like 
like, you know, homophobic dudes being like, I don't even understand what's going on here. Like yeah, they're you know, on stage and they're kissing yeah, and what's happening. Yeah, totally. So it's like, it's, it's, it's left of center enough to make it wild and crazy, but still grounded within like the same kind of pop rock sensibilities that, you know, the, the other bands that you mentioned found so much success with like Nirvana and Alice in Chains and all these other, you know, rock bands around this time period. But Jane's was, was in a lot of ways first and, and I think that makes them a lot more important than most people give credit for. I always do the wrong thing, but for very good reason. Always do it wrong, but it feels right. So forgive me. beginnings of Jane's Addiction came from the ending of another band. Lead singer Perry Farrell was frontman for Psycom in the early to mid-80s. That band broke up and Farrell started looking for new bandmates for a new musical project. Farrell first recruited Eric Avery, whom he had met earlier when he was thinking of replacing Psycom's original bass player. They found drummer Stephen Perkins through Avery's sister, Rebecca. She was dating Perkins at the time. Rebecca and Perkins wanted guitarist Dave Navarro in the band. He auditioned after the band had been through several other guitarists and finally joined, completing the classic four-member lineup of Jane's Addiction. The band took their name from Jane Bainter, a girl who lived in the same house as Farrell, and her story would also serve as the inspiration for their hit song years later, Jane Says. Jane's immediately started gaining a following in the downtown Los Angeles music scene. They also quickly drew attention from record companies, but were committed to their first release being on their own label or an independent one. They recorded one of their live shows at the Roxy, overdubbed parts of it in the studio, and this became their self-titled debut. Released in September 1987, that self-titled album had no singles, but featured many iconic tracks, including a version of their most well-known track, Jane Says, along with a few covers, a few originals that are now classics. So let's take a listen to one of those, which is the song, Whores. In the meantime, the band signed with Warner Brothers Records. Jane's toured through the end of that year and went into the studio in January 1988 to record their first studio album and debut for Warner Brothers. The record label presented the band with a list of producers that they could work with, but the band went with Dave Jordan, a name not suggested by Warner Brothers. Jordan had worked as an engineer with the Rolling Stones, Red Hot Chili Peppers, and Talking Heads. Most specifically, he had worked with Talking Head singer David Byrne on his experimental album, My Life in the Bush of Ghosts, with Brian Eno, and that inspired Farrell to choose him. By this point, the band had already written a number of songs. The band gave those songs to Jordan, 18 demo recordings. Jordan selected half of them, put them in a track list, and he had the band rehearse and record the songs in that order. 
Despite the seemingly easy process for a band that played so tightly together and had the songs, problems started emerging almost immediately. Farrell demanded the majority of the band's publishing royalties. He wanted 50% just for writing the lyrics and felt that the music comprised the other 50%, of which he deserved his fourth of, bringing his stake in the band's music to 62.5%, with the other band members receiving only 12.5% apiece. As you can imagine, this led to a huge fight. You don't say. (laughs) (laughs) It's also important to keep in mind that Farrell is about seven to eight years older than the rest of the guys in the band. Dave Navarro was only 17 when he joined, and they had to lie at clubs to just get him in the door. So we'll discuss this dynamic a little bit more with today's song, Price I Pay, so keep that kind of in the back of your mind. Jordan headed into the studio and found the band packing up, having broken up over Farrell's demands. But the label stepped in to resolve the situation, but all they did basically was give Farrell what he wanted. The other band members accepted their percentages, but it left a lot of bad feelings between Perry and the rest of the band members. The band finished recording the album, and before I mention anything more, I'd be remiss to not discuss its famous cover, which features a sculpture of two naked conjoined twins with their hair on fire. The sculpture was made by Farrell, helped by his girlfriend at the time, Casey Nicoli, whose body provided the plaster cast to make the twins. Farrell says the inspiration was from a dream. In August 1988, Nothing Shocking was released. Many record stores refused to carry the album with the original art, and a brown bag was often found covering the release. It didn't hurt the warm reception the album received from critics, but its sales weren't initially great, only peaking at 103 on the Billboard charts. This is probably really surprising considering you have most certainly heard one of the tracks that I've already mentioned a few times, Jane Says. band made a music video for the single Mountain Song, but even this proved problematic for helping Jane's reach a wider audience, given that MTV refused to air it because it featured full frontal nudity. I'm sensing a trend here. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Let's take a listen to that one, too. Despite the lack of sales and difficult promotion, the band set out on tour. They opened up for Iggy Pop and the Ramones and were sued headliners themselves. In mid-1989, Jane started work on their next record. They once again worked with producer Dave Jordan. Things in the band were starting to get even more tense, though. Farrell pushed for further creative control of the band, envisioning the whole second half of their new record as a tribute to Ziola Blue, a girlfriend Farrell had who died of a heroin overdose. Farrell himself was also heavily using heroin at this time. In the book that he wrote about the history of Jane's, he claims he'd only quit when the band was touring because heroin would close up his throat and he couldn't sing well. 
I don't. And when you read Perry Farrell's book and you see interviews with him, you you know I'm I'm not quite sure how much to believe about certain things. <laughs> he is an unreliable narrator. Yeah, that, let's that, just that. put it that way. <laughs> So while that was going on, Avery was growing disillusioned with the band, often having little input and even being told what bass lines to play. Despite all these problems, in August 1990, Ritual de lo Habitual was released. And yes, I'm supposed to say that with a little bit of Spanish accent there, but for the sake of me not tripping over that every single time, <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll call it Ritual. The first half of the record was filled with shorter rock songs in contrast to the more experimental second half, which was Farrell's Ode to Ziola. The album was critically praised and overcame the sluggish sales of its predecessor, moving half a million copies in a month, thanks in part to Been Caught Stealing. Let's take a listen. And for a taste of that experimental side, let's hear a little bit of the epic track and live staple Three Days, which was inspired by a three-day binge of sex and drugs involving Farrell, his girlfriend Casey, and his other girlfriend, Ziola. The band embarked on a year-long tour, which will also include the very first Lollapalooza. Lollapalooza was created by Farrell and a few others in the record industry. The idea was to have a touring festival that would include a variety of musical genres and other types of acts, as well as the promotion of art, politics, and other causes. Jane's was the headliner, alongside Nine Inch Nails, Living Color, Body Count, and numerous other bands. At the first Lollapalooza show, Farrell and Navarro fought on stage. Offstage, the relationship between the members was disintegrating due to drug use. Navarro was addicted to heroin during the recording of Ritual, but was now clean along with Avery. So this led to the two avoiding Farrell and Perkins. I'm not sure how much Perkins was using, but he seemed to at least be a more casual user than the other band members were or had been. As the tour wore on, Avery decided to quit, and Navarro agreed to leave as well. They were convinced by the management to finish out the tour, and Janes played their last show in this first era of the band on September 26, 1991. The band would go their separate ways, with Farrell continuing to grow Lollapalooza and starting a new band with Perkins called Porno for Pyros. Navarro would, I guess we could say infamously, join the Red Hot Chili Peppers. For those of you interested in hearing more about that, we have a Chili Peppers episode where we focus on Navarro's time in the band and a song from that era. Avery started a new project as well called Polar Bear. And in 1997, Janes regrouped, but without Avery in the band. The relationship Navarro formed with bassist Flea during his time in the Chili Peppers led to him taking Avery's place. That tour was accompanied by the Kettle Whistle compilation album, which had two new tracks, one of which wasn't new at all and had been played live previously, which was the title track, 
but it was a new studio recording along with demos, outtakes, and live tracks. Here's one of those live tracks, Stop, capturing the band in their 90s heyday. Perkins put the album together, and Navarro commented it was probably for the best since the band members would likely not have been able to agree on the tracks to include. During the tour, notably titled The Relapse Tour, Navarro does just that and starts using heroin again. The band doesn't last too long together and goes through another break, and in 2001, things begin to come together for them again. Farrell is asked by promoters if the band would like to play Coachella and then go out on tour. Avery once again chooses not to join the band, and Flea is playing with the Chili Peppers at the time, so they get Martin Lenoble, who had played in Porno for Pyros with Farrell and Perkins, to play bass. The Jubilee Tour, as it was called, goes well, and the band decides to record a new album, which would be 2003's Strays, and has our song today, Price I Pay, on it. We'll get back to discussing everything with the album shortly, including how Lenoble was replaced by bassist Chris Chaney, but let's take a quick listen to the lead single, Just Because, to get a sense of the newly regrouped Janes. The album received positive reviews, sold over 100,000 copies in its first week, and the band hits the road, part of which included headlining a revival of the Lollapalooza Festival, which had last occurred in 1997. Around the end of 2003, the band was broken up again, with Navarro saying things were the same as they had been in 1991. Then in 2008, the band emerged to tour, and this time had Avery on board, restoring the band's original lineup. They toured for a few years until Avery once again decided to leave in 2010. The band decided to carry on and record a new album, enlisting Duff McKagan of Guns N' Roses as their new bass player. During the recording of the new album, entitled The Great Escape Artist, McKagan left and was replaced by Chaney, along with Dave Siddick, a guitarist and producer. The Great Escape Artist was released in 2011. Here's one of the singles, Irresistible Force. Chaney stays on as bass player for their live shows to promote it, and on the ensuing tours, which included playing Nothing Shocking, cover to cover, and a tour to celebrate the 25th anniversary of Ritual, which the band also performed in its entirety. There are rumors of New Jane's music on the horizon, but so far nothing has been confirmed. So let's go back to the early 2000s and discuss Strays and the song Price I Pay. 
We hope you're enjoying this episode of Skipped on Shuffle. Right about now, in most podcasts, you'd be hearing an ad for something, uh, but we are trying to keep Skipped on Shuffle ad-free, and the way we're going to be able to do that is through Patreon. Please visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash skippedonshuffle. Any donations go to support the costs associated with running this podcast. So now we're in the early 2000s and Jane's Addiction has decided to release a new record of completely new material for the first time in over a decade. And to start off this this process, uh, the first thing that most bands need to do is choose a producer. And I'm just going to give a quick idea here of what a producer does, just in case there are people listening who don't quite understand the role that a producer has with creating of a record. So a producer is sort of like a director almost. It, their job is to come in and sort of guide the band to create the best the best form of their music that they can possibly make. And the selection of a producer is incredibly important because of that role, that that like overseeing role. And Bob Ezrin, who is the the producer of this album Strays, is a classic rock producer. He's the guy who produced a lot of the records that your dad listens to, your your Pink Floyd records, your Alice Cooper records, these, these you know, really straightforward, well, I guess not, Pink Floyd is not super straightforward, but well, the it idea- was, It was the later Pink Floyd albums when it's yeah, a little bit yeah, more yeah, It's normal. a little bit more, yeah, a little bit more normal, a little less trippy. But anyway, the, the point being that Bob Ezrin is the guy that you hire when you want your record to sound like a big, you know, polished- rock record. And as you probably have guessed from the songs that Jason played from the early years of Jane's Addiction, that is not at all what Jane's Addiction <laughs> really sounds like. So the selection of Bob Ezrin as the producer was 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 an interesting choice for the for first off. And and second off, what what the producer for a band like Jane's needs to be most of all and and you probably guessed this from once again from what Jason was just describing with the history of the group, what the producer of a band like Jane's needs to do is be a wrangler, basically. They, they need to keep the band from breaking up in the middle of the sessions. Like they need to be able to play off the strengths of each member. They need to be able to go to Perry and say, Perry, you're doing great work here because he wants to feed Perry's ego. And then he also needs to go to Dave and be like, Dave, you need to be more experimental here to feed Dave's, you know, guitar playing virtuosity and, and whatnot. Meanwhile, he's taken everyone's car keys so they can't leave and lock, <laughs> lock the front door. <laughs> exactly. Like this is a, this is the, the role, like the, the producer of a band like Jane's Addiction is, is, it's a very thankless role because you have to do so much more work than just like sit back in a recording booth and say, that sounds great guys. Let's move on to the next take. That is not what a producer for James addiction can do. So, so you, so you got to imagine these, these four guys, they're, they're, you know, they're older now. They're, they've been in a, you know, playing music together and apart for, for decades. And they basically almost invented alternative rock in the, in the late eighties and early nineties. And now they're reuniting decade layer to play this, this record. And they've got this old guy who's 
mostly known for making classic rock records. So you can just imagine the chaos that's ensuing during the recording of this record. And you can also imagine that the record is not going to come out sounding very much like old Jane's, which is absolutely the case. And we're, we're going to talk a little bit about just like, like the record as a whole and, and sort of give you an idea of like what's actually like, like how this all came out. What, what, you know, so you, you got these four crazy dudes together and you've got this like dad that's overseeing it all. How, what, what happens? So I'll mention the sound of the record and, and talk about these songs a little bit in a second, but it's also important to note as Scott is describing the inevitable chaos of Jane's addiction, that that is exactly what happens. And during the recording, Martin Lenoble, who was the bass player replace, replacement for Eric Avery, not wanting to take part in anything with the band for years and years now, ends up being replaced by another bass player, Chris Cheney. And not only was he replaced, but all of the tracks he was recording, all of his bass parts, and this was you know somewhere at least halfway through the recording session, they erased all of them. And Chris Cheney re-recorded those parts, allegedly rewriting them. But Martin Lenoble, when he listened to the album, was like, no, he's playing the exact same thing that I played. You know, so so there's clearly some personal problems that always continue to manifest themselves in Jane's, even in the the music and the sound. So I don't know. I, I just kind of always think about that when I listen to like the bass parts. I'm like, what is most notable here? And it's there's nothing that really stands out. I I'm not in the same way of like the Eric Avery era. So if you throw this album on, you know, don't be listening for, you know, those iconic bass lines like the beginning of Mountain Song and stuff like that. So what you end up having when you know all this and, you know, Scott and I are big Jane's Addiction fans. And I think this is kind of what I expected when I listened to the record. When you know who the producer is, you know, you don't have the original bass player there you know sort of how this band operates and you look at the track listing and you know there's one suffer some is you know an older track revisited here so you're like okay clearly you know they're they're bringing a bunch of ideas to the table and some of them are old and some of them are new so you're not quite sure how it's going to sound but you know it's going to be a slightly different Jane's addiction and i don't think that's necessarily a bad thing like when you put this record on especially Thinking about the context of, you know, rock music in 2003, uh, it's a great sounding record with like a lot of good hooks and a lot of uh, there's it just sounds great. Like it's a great rock album. But I think if you become too attached to the idea of everything with the old James Addiction, how those records sounded and, you know, that muddy raw quality that they had, you know, that's gone. And this is a more direct, straightforward, you know, rock songs with that, you know, poppy hook edge to them. And they don't really veer too far outside of, um, you know, there's, there's no experimental path that they take like really anywhere on this record. You know, like we, we talked about, you know, the whole second half of ritual and how that like veers off into, you know, these long experimental songs, this ode to, you know, Perry's one of one of Perry's girlfriends. <laughs> and, you know, there, there's none of that. It's just, you know, what, what you would expect from a younger rock band, I think, like picking up a record of just like we wrote some heavy songs with some good riffs and we're playing tight and the recording sounds good and everything sounds super polished. And 
you know, it's it's ready for radio. And I think that's kind of the thing that's that's different about this record. But even saying that, I think there's moments on individual songs where, you know, things are pushed in certain directions. And I think for at least this album, Price I Pay might be the most experimental that they try to get where, yes, it's a rock song. And if you look at the track listing, it's embedded in, you know, the early first half of the record, which is kind of the more I, I it, it, they're more straightforward songs. Not that they get, like I said, experimental later on, but there's at least, you know, an acoustic song. And then later on the record, there's an acoustic song and a song with, you know, like double bass, you know, pedals and stuff like there's some other things that kind of stand out a little bit more. But I think this is the track that stands out the most on the record as a whole and certainly on the first half of that album. Jason was just talking about how Price I Pay, the song that we're covering today from from this album, Strays, has a little bit of the flavor of early Janes. And you can hear it right from the beginning. In the beginning of the song, there's this, you know, trippy little delayed guitar part and Perry kind of whispering this repeated phrase over and over again. And it 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 has that kind of that kind of drugged out psychedelic feel to it. It's not quite as drugged out and psychedelic as some earlier Jane stuff where it was like, whoa, like what is he even saying here? What is going on? Like that's not there, but at the same time, it's still kind of got that flavor. And then this, you know, uh, baseline kicks in and it sounds awesome. And it's got, you know, it's not quite Eric Avery, but at the same time it's close enough. And that's all we can ask for. You know, it's been, (laughs) it's been 13 years since this, you know, since an album's come out and that's all we can, that's all we can ask for. Uh, you know, so it, it has that flavor and then it kind of goes off. But what's interesting about this song is it, to me, as, as a guy who's always listening to the songwriting aspects of, 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 you know, I, As a songwriter, I used to be in a band and I was the primary songwriter for that. And so songwriting is always like where I kind of go when I'm listening to music. And this song veers away from the traditional, you know, start off with an intro, go into the verse, go into the chorus, verse, chorus, bridge, chorus, chorus repeated, end of song. You know, that's like the traditional rock setup. And this song doesn't do that. It kind of goes all over the place and it has you know, a lot of different things going on to it that it makes it a little bit more unexpected. The first time you listen to the song, you might not really know like what's coming up next. And that to me was what made me fall in love with Jane's Addiction, you know, when I first started listening to them as a kid, which was just like, I have no idea. Not only do I not know what the next song is going to sound like, I don't even know what the bridge of the song I'm listening to is going to sound like because they were just so wild and so unpredictable. And... And that kind of comes back a little bit for this song. And, and that's why I think it's, it's a great representation of, of, this, of this new Janes trying to be like the old Janes. And interestingly, the lyrics kind of play a little bit into that theme in a certain way. You could say lyrically, 
a lot of price I pay is talking about how the band remains so true to themselves where yes, this is kind of a new Jane's addiction and things are a little different now, but this is still the, the band is still giving you honestly like who they are. So Scott mentioned the weird little dreamy psychedelic intro there of Perry basically doing some iteration of I always do the wrong thing, but for a very good reason, you know, forgive me now, forgive me later. And it's kind of just admitting that I think to some extent Perry, but also probably speaking on behalf of the band is just like, we're a bunch of guys who do these things because we believe in ourselves and believe in the art that we're putting forward and the way we live our lives and sort of, I guess one thing you could say with Jane's addiction is yes. Some of the songs are about specific people and specific experiences, but also you have a lot of Jane songs that are just about sort of the band's outlook on life and about how they see themselves in the world and how you're supposed to be and the things that you should care about. So yes, you get, you know, some like drugs are awesome and like everybody should drop everything they're doing and party. And I feel like this is, this is an older Jane's addiction sort of reflecting back on sort of how impulsive that they tend to be. So it's, it's a mature band kind of thinking like, Oh, I, do wrong things, but I feel okay with doing them. So it's this acknowledgement that they're this, they can be this like fucking crazy mess even still nowadays, but we're being who we are. Like we can't fake it for you and you're going to see it when you hear us, you know, when you see us live, you're going to hear it on the record. So I think that sort of justifies as Scott mentioned with the the sound of the song being kind of unexpected it's it's sort of being true to that I I don't know what these guys are going to come out with next or what they're going to say next or what they're going to do next so there is some you know sense of regret that I feel like or or nostalgia or thinking about you know times past that I I think occasionally shows up on a Jane's record but this is kind of in a, in a more mature sort of adult way while also when you look at the lyrics, they're still being totally over the top. So we should probably mention the one at least verse, I guess that that is the total Perry Farrell kind of insanity. So there, there's one verse. So he's talking about, you know, there, there ain't no other way. This is the price I pay. So, you know, I, I'm living my life and I'm out there and he mentions I could have it, but I walked away. Now I won't miss out. Not even one day. So you could get the sense that's maybe him being like, I walked away from this band, but I love these guys and I love making music with them. And, you know, I'm going to just go out there and get everything in in the world, I, I guess, you know, uh, gra- you know, grab the world by the balls and. <laughs> You know, there's there's this verse. So I see you. You're going places. So let's get the hell out of here. I'm a big liver man at the table. I got my long cunt drawn. I'm able to lay you out. <laughs> <laughs> and again, it's still that like edgy pushing. And uh, you, the, I think the funny thing with Jane's addiction is like, even if you're not quite sure what the hell he's talking about, you you still get the sense of emotion where 
you know, it's this guy basically like I'm all in. Like you can't you can't challenge like I'm just all in like no matter where I am. So I feel like for that line you get the sense like maybe it's taking a meeting, you know, at a like fancy restaurant or something or, you know, a uh, uh, meeting with record execs or whatever it might be and, you know, I'm going to show up and I'm going to be Perry because that's who I am and I don't know any other way to live. And you get a, another sense of that in this little sort of bridge part that revisits that dreamy intro where he says, always having a good time, always searching for more, flying now, paying later. I'm flying now. <laughs> I am literally on drugs right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and, and it's like, it's so important to sort of keep in mind, you know, this band. And as you know, Scott mentioned at the top of the episode, just like this overstimulation that makes its way into the music and you know is like flowing through along with the drugs flowing through <laughs> the you know the veins of like these members is just like these people are all in so i think it's funny that this album gets a lot of criticism for not being like the old janes or being as experimental because i feel like you know it's 13 years later like these guys have grown up a little bit in some ways so I think they're just being true to themselves. And this is kind of them reminding everyone like, hey, we're still people of, you know, excess. But at the same time, we're giving you we're, we're putting it all out there. We're giving you everything. We're not holding back. We would never do that. And I think that's kind of why later on in the song. There's this line, finally, nothing to say. Just put the cloth right over my face because I feel like. Perry's basically saying that if we didn't have anything to say, like, I don't want to be here anymore. Like, I need to do this. I need to express myself. I need to be out there. And if I have nothing to say, then I wouldn't say anything. And I would basically, like, be done and be dead. But, you know, here I am because this is, you know, always the price I pay. I got to thrust it out, <laughs> as, as he says. <laughs> oh, my God. Perry. Just, just wild and crazy Perry. <laughs> If you'll remember Jason talking about the history of Jane's Addiction, you'll know that the first time the band breaks up is after the tour for Ritual de L'Obitual, and that was in 91. So the album came out in 90, and then they broke up in 91. So in 91, I was eight. <laughs> so I was a child. I, I barely even was you know listening to rock music of any caliber at that age and by then the band had already done the the bulk of what it is legendary for so by the time i started listening to jane's addiction and really getting into it you know they they were they were not active you know perry was was doing lollapalooza and porno for pyros and dave navarro was in the chili peppers and it was there there was not 
there was no light on the horizon that they were going to get back together and there was going to be a big tour or anything like that. And then the band eventually did reunite to do some touring, but even then I was a little young and, and whatever, and uh, I just missed out on it. And I was also disappointed that Eric Avery was not going to be there. So I was kind of like, eh, and I never really saw them, but it wasn't until the tour for this record for strays in 2003 or was it 2004? It was either 2003 or 2004 when the band was touring to, to promote this record. And, uh, they, 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 as Jason had mentioned, they, they revitalized Lollapalooza and Jason and I went, and that was my first time seeing Jane's addiction. And unfortunately, Eric Avery wasn't there. Chris Cheney was there as the bass player. Um, but the band was, you know, live on stage that, you know, that, that energy, that, that, that just total insanity was was there. And it was also Lollapalooza, which was also my first time going to this, you know, now legendary rock festival. And there were some great bands there. There was uh, Incubus was there, uh, Audio Slave. It was their first tour. They were the co-headliner. Well, I guess not co-headliner, but they played right before Jane's. And so they were, you know, they, it was great seeing them. And, and I'm glad I got to see them before, you know, Chris Cornell, unfortunately, passed away. So it was just this great day. And uh, there's another band there that played that I was really into uh, called The Music. And so I got to see them play. And just it was just a really wonderful day capped off by finally getting to see Jane's Addiction live on stage. And yes, they were older. And yes, they played you know a, a couple of tracks from this record when they could have instead played some of my favorite tracks from their first two records. Uh, and they unfortunately didn't play Three Days, which is... You know, any Jane's Addiction fan will tell you is the highlight of any live show that they do. But unfortunately, they didn't do it. Um, I think they were they were stuck for time. Uh, they started late. The, you know, the, they were the they were the closing act. So uh, the closing act sometimes will get cut down because if you go over time, then um, you have to pay all the crew more money. So they 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 cut you off. So we we missed out a little bit on that, and that was unfortunate. But um, but it was still an amazing show, and 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 getting to see them, and it was a great time with me and Jason. So you know, when I listen to this record, and even when I listen to some of the older stuff now, I still think about that great show and that great time uh, in at the Jones Beach amphitheater in uh in long island for that for that Lollapalooza show it's just it's just really cool but but i think i think getting to see janes on stage is what really makes you connect with them even if you're just watching a video if you just go to youtube and just google like you know i don't know best janes addiction live performance or whatever you'll find a bunch of stuff and it's just you know it's just insane perry is just way over the top there's there's dancing girls everywhere like on the stage they they bring these dancing girls with them wherever they go and like it's just it's just totally nuts and so yeah I, whenever i think of jane's now i tend to think of that show because it was just this you know it was it was a big it was a big day for me yeah i'm gonna echo scott's comments about just great seeing jane's and i'd actually seen the band on the tour previous to that which was that jubilee tour in I think it was 2001 and just how memorable it was because you know I, I was I was younger at the time I don't remember exactly I'm probably try, trying to do the math real quick here maybe 17 um, going to see the show and I went with my dad and we kind of didn't know what to expect because I mean it's it's Jane's addiction and they were playing up in Worcester 
and Worcester, Massachusetts. And um, so we didn't know. And I, I don't really think I had seen that many like live clips or anything. It was like I I had bought the they they had packaged the three albums they had together in like a little like CD box set. And that's how I like first started listening to Jane's Addiction because it was like, I don't know, for 20 something bucks, you got, you know, all the, the entire catalog of Jane's Addiction. <laughs> um, so so I had everything and listened to everything, but didn't listen to like a lot of the live stuff. So I wasn't quite sure what to expect. And as Scott mentioned, it's it's a band you need to see live because it will totally blow you away. Not only the musicianship, but just the the stage show and just the presence of this band. And so we go to the show and it starts and Perry comes out and he's got this giant white sheet around him and there are people under the sheet like moving it around. I mean, he's taking up like, you know, <laughs> 10, 15 feet across the stage with this thing and just w- he's walking out. But the way that the sheet is around him and the way the these people are moving it's like he's floating out like a god which i'm pretty sure was his intention and how he like walks around feeling most of the time (laughs) but to just see it on stage and they opened with kettle whistle which is a song that they don't play live very often they had they had it back in the day that was one of the ones they re-recorded when they did the the album of the same name the kettle whistle compilation and it just blew me away and then from then on it was just an all-out insane rock show I remember my dad and I actually like being kind of scared at the show because (laughs) like the way people were pushing forward and you had like mosh pits starting like it was like a fucking crazy rock show that I feel like you don't get anymore unless you go to like probably like a small, you know, scene or a small club, you know, go to see like a metal show in like a, you know, 500 person 300 person club somewhere that kind of shit probably happens but you don't expect to see this at like modern you know arena rock shows anymore a a, a reunion tour yeah not even older man (laughs) yeah yeah like you don't you don't think that's gonna happen yeah and i i just remember being like this is just intense and this is crazy and and it was just so good and i feel like they played a much more adventurous set then too because they had like an a and b stage so they opened with kettle whistle you know did some rock stuff and then they had a stage set up in the back of the arena that they went to where they played a couple songs acoustic so like you know i got to hear stuff like classic girl like things that they don't do all the time because usually when you see them they typically tend to hang on like the more rock heavy stuff um, they also did a, a solo song from Perry had just come out with a solo album and so did Dave Navarro. So they did those. So that was kind of like interesting to hear in the midst of the Jane songs. So that was, yeah, like a totally memorable experience for me. Um, same thing with, you know, going with Scott to the Lollapalooza show. I also saw them one other time uh, with uh, when Eric Avery was in the band. I think that was the the time they toured with Nine Inch Nails, which... <laughs> Yeah, the the Ninja it's, Tour, Nine Inch Nails, the Ninja Jane's tour, Nine Inch yeah, Nails, yeah, Jane's cute. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and and that was cool too because I think because Eric Avery was there, they played like one percent. They did like you know some stuff that they don't normally do. Yeah, they totally um, they totally ignored yeah. this record, right? They totally ignored Strays. Anything that Eric, yeah, Avery I don't didn't think play Yeah, the, yeah, yeah. Now that you mention it, I don't think they played anything off of it. It's not. Yeah, I. 
That must have been the case. Eric was probably like, yeah. no, we're not playing any of those songs. <laughs> they were probably like, maybe we can go in and erase Chris Cheney's parts now. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, every time you see them live and, you know, even to this day, like, uh, you know, as Scott mentioned, like, go to YouTube, look up these shows. Because when I'm just kind of sitting around hanging out and I'm like, oh, I want to kind of like listen to, you know, Jane's show or put something on the background. It's like you look up these shows and you're just like, man, this is just <laughs> insanity. Like this is just a, a band that is just so good. And one of those things where it's just the kind of, yes, they've reunited and they put out new material and and stuff over the years. But that flash in the pan moment of just like that mid to late 80s to you know 91 is just phenomenal and even you know some of the reunion tours like as i mentioned you know the jubilee tour blew me away um there's a great video of them on the relapse tour where they play the hammerstein ballroom in new york and it's halloween of <laughs> of all jane's appropriate <laughs> holidays to latch onto to you know be festive um, and, and I know, I know there's a video of like that whole show online. So, you know, just, yeah, go to YouTube, look it up. It's crazy. We'll, we'll see if they end up getting back together and what they do in the future. But I'm, I'm just glad they're still doing their thing and I will, you know, they can pretty much be the Rolling Stones for me. I won't really care that, you know, it'll, they'll be, you know, 50, 60 playing three days. <laughs> screaming screaming erotic jesus lays with his marys <laughs> you know I'll, I'll like i'll i'll always love it because it's just yeah it's something special about this band and just yeah when you want to be completely blown away by four people super passionate about you know what they're doing regardless of who the bass player is but yeah seeing perry and dave up there is you know and stephen perkins who's just an insanely good drummer uh yeah i just i can't heap enough praise on this band for what they do and uh even you know the strays record i'll put on from time to time and it's a really good listen so no matter where you decide to start with the band i mean obviously we're gonna praise the early period the most but you know any any anything you choose to listen to it's a bunch of guys in a room or on a stage that really care about what they do and you know that they aren't holding anything back. Please visit our website at www.skippedonshuffle.com for more news about other episodes and our upcoming schedule. We are also on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Please visit skippedonshuffle.com for links to all of our social media pages.